0: Several years ago, By Faith Magazine conducted an interview with J.I. Packer on the 45th anniversary of his classic book, Knowing God. And if you've not read the book, Knowing God, by J.I. Packer, I highly recommend it to you. I first read it in 1993, and it just went over my head. If I had absorbed what was in that book in 1993, I'd probably be a different person now. But the elders took some men through it a while ago, and reading it again was so beneficial to my soul. Here's a part of that interview where Packer explains how staggering it is that God actually speaks to us through his word and invites us to join him on mission. Here's the reality, Packer says. The God of the universe, before whom the nations are as a drop in a bucket, comes to you and begins to talk to you through the words and truths of Holy Scripture. Right now, Packer insists, God is actually speaking to you. At first, Packer cautions, the conversation might be discouraging. Initially, God talks with you about your sin, guilt, weakness, and blindness. The conversation might be depressing, he says, because it forces you to see that you are hopeless and helpless and in terrible need. But as you listen you realize that God is opening his heart to you, making friends with you, and enlisting you as a partner. That is staggering, Packer writes, and it is true. It's as if God puts us on his staff, Packer says. We become insiders, fellow workers, and personal friends. So as we dig into First Kings this morning... Remember that God is speaking to you. God is actually speaking to you. To paraphrase one of my favorite theologians, John Calvin, he said when God speaks to us, it's as if he uses baby talk. In other words, God is infinitely glorious, and yet he condescends and comes down to our level, stoops down, and he speaks to us. And when it's him speaking to us, it's as if a parent is speaking baby talk to their little child. That's how God speaks to us in Scripture. So right now, where you are and in whatever situation you find yourself today, God is speaking to us to you personally. And yes, it's true. When God speaks to us in his word, he does talk about our sin. He does talk about our guilt and our weakness and our blindness. That's what God's law does. It exposes our heart. It opens up our heart. It's open heart surgery, Jesus style. It shows us who we really are. God's word shows us who we really are. The part of us that nobody else knows, God knows, His Word knows. God's Word shows us who we really are on the inside. It shows us what we are like. It reveals our shadow side. It reveals all the junk that festers inside. And that can be depressing, right? (laughs) It can be depressing to hear the truth about your own heart. It can be depressing to get a peek inside of your own heart. But it can be a good thing too because it forces us to see that we are hopeless and helpless and in terrible need. And that's where the gospel comes in and does its burden-lifting, guilt-removing, sin-forgiving, heart-liberating work. And so, our big idea today is simply what actually happens when you open God's Word. God is opening His heart to you. When we open up God's Word, God is opening up His heart to us. How kind of Him. So, if you ever find yourself not wanting to read God's Word, and who hasn't been there? Let's not lie if you find yourself not, I just really don't want to read God's Word today. And who hasn't been there before? Remind yourself that when you open God's Word, He's opening up His heart to you. He's telling you what He is like. He's letting you peek inside of His heart, how He is holy and powerful and infinitely glorious and sovereign and wise and kind and merciful and caring and loving and generous. So open this book and see God open his heart to you. All the commandments, all of those long and seem to never end genealogies in the Old Testament, all of those hard to pronounce names, all the cities and countries that you can't locate on a map, all of the repetition, all of the poetry, all of the songs, all of that is God opening his heart to you. It's him making friends with you. Friends with God. Think about that. What kind of God wants to be friends with people who say and do things like the things that we say and do? That might be one reason why the word gospel means good news, because God wants to be friends with us. I think Jesus even called us friends, right? John 15, you are my friends. What beautiful words. You People like you, you are my friends, Jesus says. Amazing. But God also enlists us as his partner, as J.I. Packer said. When we open up our Bibles, we see God's plan and God's passion for this world. We see his desire to see the nations of the world come and glorify and enjoy him. And we get to join him on that mission. Who knew that reading the Bible could be so cool? So let's read God's word right now. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 2. 1 Kings is in the Old Testament. We started our new series, Wholehearted, last week. And what we'll see today is exactly what we've been talking about this morning. From our call to worship, to our prayer of confession and celebration, to our scripture reading. It's all about guarding our hearts David, in our passage today, will remind Solomon of the importance of keeping his finger on the pages of Scripture so that his heart will not drift. I mean, and who doesn't need that reminder from time to time? That we need to anchor our fingers on God's Word so that our hearts do not drift away from Him. So look at 2 Kings chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and hear the word of the Lord to you. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying... If your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So today we're, we're breaking chapter 2 of 1 uh, Kings into two sermons because there's so much here that I couldn't say everything that needs to be said in just 35 or 40 minutes. So I kept editing and editing this week and editing and ad- editing And I finally gave up and said, okay, you win, Holy Spirit. Two sermons it is. This whole chapter should be preached together because it forms one unit. However, we're going to break it up today, and here's why. I think we're going to slow down. I think God wants us to slow down because God wants to speak to someone here today. You're drifting, and you know it. And your heart is getting cold to the Lord things are getting dark and you're drifting away from him and God loves you so much this morning that he quote unquote told me this week, cover the first four verses. In other words, God loves you so much that we're slowing down to hover over these verses so he can tell you don't drift. Don't let your heart grow cold and that's for someone here this morning. And It's actually a good thing we need to slow down because what we see in verses 1 through 4 actually explains what happens or doesn't happen throughout the rest of the books of First and Second Kings. If you recall from last week, First and Second Kings were written to explain to the original audience why they ended up in Babylon as slaves in exile. And the reason they ended up in exile is because of what we are looking at today in verses 1 through 4. For the most part... All the kings that reigned throughout the period of this book did not do what verses 1 through 4 say. And that's why the nation ended up in exile because all those kings did not guard their heart. They didn't open up God's word like David tells Solomon here. Speaking of hearts, King David's heart is going to stop beating soon because he's about to die. So he's going to prep his son Solomon on what it takes to be king. And where does David start? He starts with the heart. He starts with guarding the heart with God's God's word. And that's why I want us to hover over these verses today because I want us to focus on our hearts this morning. Now, it's strange when you think about it. David doesn't brief Solomon on military warfare, the trillion-dollar deficit, the CIA, the FBI. David doesn't tell Solomon all that he knows about what really happened at Area 51 David doesn't tell Solomon to build a wall around Jerusalem. I'll let that linger for a minute, depending on which side of the wall you're on. Because there already was a wall around Jerusalem. No, where does David focus? He focuses on God's word, the law of Moses. David is telling Solomon that whatever he does, he must make sure that he clings to the word of God. He must put his finger on the law of Moses, anchor his heart there so he doesn't drift. He must underline his Bible, if you will, highlight verses, take notes. In fact, this is what God's law said that every king had to do. Listen to what Moses said about the primary duties of kings in Deuteronomy 17. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him. And he shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So why did Yahweh, the Lord, why did Yahweh state that the king must not stock up on horses, women, and cash? Well, the answer is right there in verse 17. Lest his heart turn away. Why did Yahweh say that the king must copy the Mosaic law by hand and read it all the days of his life? The answer is right there in verse 20 that his heart may not be lifted up above his brother's. It's all about the heart. Why does God focus on the heart first? Because God knows the human heart. God knows that every single human heart is deceitful and wicked. As the prophet Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. You want to know why your kids act up? You want to know why your kids disobey? Right there. Jeremiah 17. You want to know why social media, it's just awful to get on social media anymore? Right there. Jeremiah 17. That explains what happens on the comments section of Facebook. Explains the warfare on Twitter. Jeremiah 17. You want to know why churches get messy and people can't get along with one another and there's drama? Right there, Jeremiah 17. Do you want to know why you act up? Why you disobey? Why you are messy? Why you can't get along with other people? And why you cause drama? It's right there, Jeremiah 17. The heart. God knows the human heart. God knows that if a king accrues horses and women and money cars and women and money and all the stuff that he can buy on Amazon, then his heart will drift. These things will pull a king away from devotion to the Lord. And as we'll see in the rest of 1 Kings, it actually does with Solomon. Listen, God knows our uh, propensity to experience heart drift That's why the king had to not only write out by hand his own copy of the Mosaic Law, but he had to read it every day. Why? Because kings are sinners. And so are people who sit in church and hear sermons about kings who are sinners from the book of 1 Kings. And so is the one who preaches a sermon about kings who are sinners to sinners sitting in church hearing sermons about kings who are sinners from the book of 1 Kings. Because we're all sinners. And God knows our propensity to experience this heart drift where we begin drifting away from him, where our affections begin to cool. That's why he gave us the Sabbath Sunday, so that we could rest and get renewed and come and hear the gospel preached week in and week out so that we could be recalibrated by the ordinary means of grace as a church family so that we would not drift. Sunday morning is what we were singing earlier. Nothing going to stop Jesus from chasing you down. No mountain. Nothing. Sunday morning is for Jesus chasing you down and saying, Come back, boy. Grabbing you by the collar and saying, Come on, don't. Every Sunday as we gather to hear the word of God preached, Jesus is chasing us down and he's capturing our hearts. Grace always chases us down and rescues us. Our shepherd will not let us drift forever. Even though we are wayward sheep, and we can go way far away from him, even though we do drift sometimes, we have a shepherd who keeps us. He's got a long staff, like one of those extensions you just keep pulling out. We have a shepherd who keeps us. He calls us with his voice and we listen as Jesus himself said in John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And what is his voice? It's the gospel. The voice of our shepherd is the gospel. Martin Luther said the voice of this shepherd with which he speaks to his sheep and calls them is the holy gospel. The pasture with which Christ feeds his sheep is also the dear gospel by which our souls are fed and strengthened, preserved from error, comforted in all temptations and sorrows, protected against the devil's wile and power, and finally saved from all need. Jesus calls us back each week. Now, if we ignore his voice, We can seriously mess up our lives. As we saw last week, sin does bring serious consequences. That's why the original audience, the nation of Israel, ended up in exile. They had to suffer the consequences of their rebellion. And how easy it is to just drift. How easy it is to just drift and kind of zone out in the Christian life. How easy it is to kind of get drowsy, to get sleepy. It's probably the easiest thing to do as a Christian, isn't it? You know what the hardest thing to do as a Christian is? To wait. Wait on the Lord. Wait for him to answer your prayers. Wait for him to intervene. Wait for him to tell you what he wants you to do with your life. The hardest thing to do as a Christian, I think, is to wait. The easiest thing is to just start drifting. Just get drowsy. Just start living a dull life distracted by the things of the world and kind of slipped into this drifting, drowsy discipleship, kind of like on the lazy river at one of the water parks. Just kind of float down the lazy river. You don't do anything. The original audience of 1st and 2nd Kings had drifted from the Lord, and it could happen in our day too. It's just easy to experience heart drift. As the song says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Crazy? Yeah. But if we can swallow this hard truth, we'll realize that we're just like the original audience, living in exile, prone to wonder, oh, Lord, I feel it. And if we don't keep coming back to the gospel, back to who Jesus is and what he has done for us and all that he is for us, then guess what? We will drift, plain and simple. You know this. And I know this. We all know that we, when we get our eyes off of Jesus, we begin to drift. And that's why we need a reminder every single week here about who Jesus is and what he's done for us and all that he is for us. That's why when we gather together every Sabbath as the church, we need to be reminded of Jesus. We need to be reminded that his obedience is what secures us. The preacher of the book of Hebrews Warned against drifting and having your heart hardened, Hebrews 2.1, therefore we, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. They've heard the gospel, and the preacher of Hebrews says, you know what, we've got to pay even closer attention. I don't care what you knew of the gospel last week. The preacher of Hebrews says, you need to pay closer attention to it. We all have a tendency, because we're sinners, to look away from Jesus, look away from the gospel, and the end result is that we will drift. Now, I don't think the author of Hebrews is saying that you lose your salvation by drifting because I don't think that's biblical. I don't think you can lose your salvation. What he's saying is that if we don't keep the gospel front and center, we will eventually drift from Jesus. But not only will we drift from Jesus if we get our eyes off of him, we'll mess up our lives too. If we drift from the gospel and enjoy the pleasures of sin, of course God will still love us. Of course he will still forgive us. Of course we will still be in union with Christ. None of those things will change. What will happen though is that we'll mess up our lives. Just because we are in union with Christ does not mean that we will escape the consequences of our sin. Just because we're in union with Christ doesn't mean we will escape the consequences. It's why we must keep hearing the gospel. Sadly, I saw this play out with a friend in Texas, a man who had an affair, and he told me, he said this, as soon as I started turning my eyes off of Jesus, I started to drift and it got dark real fast. He's totally forgiven of his sin. His relationship with God was never at stake. He's in union with Christ, he's secure in Jesus, but his life became a mess. Why? Because he took his eyes off of Jesus and began to drift. And God knows that propensity is in every one of us. So God, in his grace, told his people in his word that the king of the nation had to keep his finger on God's law because the king was the moral compass of the nation. If the king drifted from the Lord, the people would drift from the Lord. So David is passing this wisdom on to his son Solomon Saying, if the king is to be established, Solomon, son, you got to keep your finger on God's word. If you don't want to drift, keep your finger on God's word. So David says, Solomon, you have to pay close attention to your way. You have to walk in faithfulness with all of your heart and all of your soul, as verse 4 says. That doesn't mean that Solomon would be sinless. Only Jesus was sinless. Saying, just watch your life. And it does not mean that Solomon would never have problems as king. Copying and reading the Mosaic Law did not mean that Solomon would be free from internal staff problems, free from accusations, free from threats of impeachment, wars, fake news, or even attempts on his life. And the same is true for us. Does reading God's word guarantee that life will be established and there will be no problems? No. No. That's the prosperity gospel. That's a false gospel. Just read the Bible and you'll see that God's people are always going through suffering even when they had God's word. But we can say this. If you never read God's word, if you neglect God's word, if you do not sit humbly, humbly under the weekly preaching of God's word, your life will not be what it could be you'll dry up, you'll get bitter, you'll drift, and you won't see Jesus. And you need to see Jesus every day in his word, because as J.I. Packer said, you are hopeless and helpless and in terrible need. You and I need to see Jesus every single day in his word, because we are hopeless by ourselves. We're helpless by ourselves. We are in terrible need of him. It's why we need to see him. So, can we all agree that if you continually neglect God's Word, you will see the fruit of that in your life? And can we all agree that if you expose your heart and mind to God's Word, then that is a good thing? It doesn't mean that God will give you a mansion in a private jet and everything will be rosy. Why? Because life is hard. We all struggle. We all go through trials. We all suffer. We all struggle with indwelling sin. Every Christian experiences all of that stuff. But there's obviously going to be somewhat of a difference if you go through all of those things and experience all of those things and one, you read, study, meditate, memorize, and hear God's word preached week in and week out, and two, if you neglect God's word. There'll be a difference. David is aiming for Solomon's heart here. Yes, David could tell Solomon that he needed to keep his finger on God's word, but what would create the desire in his heart to be devoted to God's word? Where does that appetite come from? Where does that appetite come from for you and for me? Answer, the gospel. Answer, God's covenant. Answer, God's mercy. Answer, God's faithfulness. Answer. For Solomon and David, the sacrifices. For us, Jesus' work on the cross. Exposure to the gospel creates a hunger for Jesus. It takes the work of God's spirit in our hearts as we expose ourselves to the ordinary means of grace. Prayer, and scripture, and communion and baptism. And when you expose yourself to the very ordinary means of grace, you will be reminded time and time again that God is opening his heart to you. And that's what we see as the Lord established the kingdom for Solomon. All of the talk in this chapter, and we'll see more of it next week, about the kingdom being established is just another way of saying that God is opening his covenant-keeping heart to Solomon here, that he's making friends with Solomon, and that he's enlisting Solomon as his partner in kingdom ministry. David is telling Solomon that God is opening up his heart to Solomon in the law. David is telling Solomon that he needs God's word so that his own heart won't deceive him. Notice here that David didn't give Solomon the ever popular advice of just follow your heart. Just follow your heart. Listen, don't follow your heart. Guard your heart. Follow your heart is terrible advice. Terrible. Your heart is deceitful and wicked, and it can trick you into thinking that what you want, you should get. It can trick you into saying that what God said in his word doesn't apply to you because, and I quote, God just wants me to be happy. He wants me. It's okay if I ignore his clear word so that I can be happy. God wants you to guard your heart, not follow your heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. Everything you do flows from your heart. Everything. So you better guard it. Every pastor, and probably now every Christian, can tell you about someone that they know, a brother or sister in Christ, who was just following their heart. And they said something like this. I know God's word says this, but I feel that he wants me to be happy, so I'm going to go do this. This is what I feel in my heart. Yeah? And your heart is deceitful and wicked. And who can know it? Not you. That stuff... That's Genesis 3, talking snake, asking questions under a fruit tree business. That's what that is. That God's word says this, but it's okay that I do this, the opposite of that, because he wants me to be happy. All of that, all of it is, is Genesis 3, talking snake, asking questions under a fruit tree business. That's all that it is. Rondi Lauterbach says in her book, Hungry, Learning to Feed Your Soul with Christ. She talks about this. She says this. When God gives this command to the man, Adam, he is offering him something that he hasn't offered the animals. A two-way relationship of love. He invites the man to respond to love with love. God not only made us, he made us for himself. That's the point of the first two chapters of Genesis. Our relationship with him is what is meant to feed our souls. Everything that we long for, including our longing to know ourselves, is meant to be found in a dynamic, two-way relationship with the God who made us and knows us. This is the deep answer to our deep hunger. Ever since the day of Adam's choice, the lie of the serpent has lodged in our hearts. God is not good. His commands are unreasonable. He must be holding back on us. Now that the relationship is broken, why should we care about the rules? We've all had the experience of reducing God to the angel on our right shoulder who argues with the devil on our left. And when we get tired of this back and forth wrestling with our conscience, we dismiss them both with a poof. That's when I needed that noise to go off. We dismiss them both with a poof And go off and do what we want. I win, we're tempted to think. I don't need God's pesky rules anyway. I know what's best for me. I certainly know what I want. And what I want right now is not God, but this thing in front of me. That's our struggle every day. The lie of the serpent underneath that fruit tree has been lodged deep within our hearts. The daily temptation put in front of us by the serpent. The devil says to us, as he said to Adam and Eve, God is not good. God's commands are unreasonable. He must be holding back on us. He must be holding back on you. But that couldn't be further from the truth. God is good. His commandments are good. And he is not holding back on us. In fact, when you read his word, guess what? God is opening his heart to you to the person who has the lie of the serpent lodged in theirs. God is opening his heart to you here. Listen, Jesus is after nothing less than your wants, your loves, your longings, your heart. The question is, will we humble ourselves and listen? Will we take God up on this two-way relationship of love? Will we respond to his love with love? Will we let him feed our souls with the gospel of his son? Will we enjoy this dynamic two-way relationship with the God who made us and knows us? Will we allow God to talk to us about our sin, our guilt, our weakness, and our blindness? Will we allow the Holy Spirit to show us from God's word that we are hopeless and helpless and in terrible need? Freedom comes when we do. We show that we are friends with God when we let his word do its work in our lives. When we let God's law expose us and when we let the gospel relieve us and free us from condemnation and remind us that God loves us unconditionally with no strings attached. Whoever's running from Jesus this morning, let me tell you, he loves you unconditionally no strings attached let's close with some words from Ian Murray who wrote this about the death of the great Scottish preacher Robert Bruce he says this Bruce was now some 75 years of age his wife had been dead for several years and he was also ready for home I wonder why I am kept here so long he would say to his friends the following year While having breakfast, his daughter, Martha, was about to prepare him another egg when he said, hold, daughter, hold, my master calleth me. He then asked that the house Bible, the Geneva version, be brought. Unable himself to read it, he said, cast me up the eighth of Romans. And himself, he began to recite much of the second half of the chapter until he came to the last two verses. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Set my finger on these words, he asked. God be with you, my children. I have breakfasted with you and shall sup with my Lord Jesus this night. I die believing these words. That's the kind of church that we want to be, where we open our Bibles and find God opening his heart to us, where we find ourselves saying, cast me up on the 8th of Romans. Cast me up on the 5th of 2 Corinthians. Cast me up on the 1st of Ephesians. Cast me up on the 3rd of Lamentations. That's where I was this morning, Lamentations 3. And the author is devastated. He's dry. He's he's empty. His affections, all he feels is pain and sadness and depression. He says, peace has left me. And he says, I don't even know what happiness is anymore. And then he says this. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. I have hope even though I'm dry. I have hope even though I'm empty. I have hope even though I've drifted. I have hope even though my heart is cold, and I just don't want to read my Bible. He says, but I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord... It never ceases. His mercies, really, it's the Hebrew word, for calm, compassion. His compassions never come to an end. So Jesus sees you running from him this morning. Your heart's cold. You're indifferent. You could care less. And he should throw a lightning bolt at you. Right? He's holy. You're a sinner. And yet, his mercy is heated up like an oven. His compassion. He doesn't strike you with a lightning bolt. His mercy, His compassion is new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Great is your fickleness. Great is my fickleness. Ask my family. Great is His faithfulness. So if you're here today and you're dry and you're empty and you've drifted, His steadfast love never Stops. Your love for him is stop and go. It's like teaching somebody how to drive a stick shift. You know. Jesus' love for you is steadfast. It's pedal to the floor, 95 miles an hour, CHP way back in the distance. That's his love for you. He's chasing you down. He's zero to 60 in five seconds and beyond to get you. His steadfast love never Ends Yours does for him. Your love isn't steadfast. Set your finger on these promises. We want to be that kind of church. A Robert Bruce inspired church. So what promise do you need to cast yourself up on this morning? What promise do you need to put your finger on? This book is full of them. Find one and put your finger on it. And don't leave. Let it anchor your heart. So... To all who are running on empty this morning. Or you've been feeding on the junk food of this world. You've been rummaging for scraps. Or you're here and you're simply pretending that you're fine and you know deep down inside you're not. To you, Jesus says, simply come. Come to the gospel feast and eat and drink and be merry and be satisfied. If we want to see the glory of Jesus, the all-satisfying glory of Jesus, we must go to God's word. And we see there that God has come in person. The God of love has come to meet you in his son. God has come and spread a table for us in the wilderness, the dry wilderness, which some of you are are in. Jesus, he comes to you today in the wilderness and says, here's a feast. So come breakfast with Jesus. Come sup with him. Come to Jesus and have your soul fed and strengthened and be preserved from error and be comforted in all your temptations and sorrows and be protected against the devil's wile and power and finally be saved from all need. Come to the gospel pasture because God is opening his heart to you personally this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your love Steadfast in your compassion for messed up, jacked up, broken, confused sinners. It's new every morning. How are you so merciful and kind and compassionate? How do you not just cast us away and say, You get what you deserve? How are you this way? It's because of who you are, it's because of Jesus. And we thank you for that, Lord. Pull our hearts back in this morning, Father. Pull us back into orbit, God, around you and around the glorious gospel of your Son. Feed us and and refresh us and satisfy us this morning, we ask. In Jesus' name, by the power of your Spirit, amen.